Let's imagine that we're not at home or in the car or at work listening to the radio, but in a vast underground chamber filled with the sound of water. The air is damp and heavy with a strange thick reek. It's dark, but the darkness is cut through by swinging torchlights. Up ahead, high on the wall, are four giant iron-hinged doors. Over our shoulder we see several figures, clad head to foot, as we are in bright yellow rubber, with masks and boots and equipment. One of them signals and we turn and follow into an oval tunnel, made of the glazed brick, beloved of Victorian engineers. We wade against the flow of knee-high grey water as the tunnel gradually decreases in height. Water trickles, pours, splashes and drips from hidden weirs and culverts. Far above, we occasionally spy daylight. The going is tough. The distance between us and the figure in front is growing. So we are relieved to round a bend and find the others have stopped. They're gathered about a ledge and are sort of panning for gold. We do the same and plunging gloved hands into the basin behind the ledge, dig around and pull things to the surface. Suddenly, one of our companions points to the handful we're holding. Amongst the gravel and gunge is an old, fragile silver ring. Stop. Let's pause this and cycle back through time and across space a thousand miles or so. We are sitting on the top of a mountain peak, gazing down at a wide plain. It's hot and dry. There's no water here. The shadows are shrinking as the morning advances. Far beneath, tiny figures move amongst olive groves. The sky is a vast, empty blue. The only sounds are a breeze, birds, insects, and the occasional distant engine. Standing up, we pick our way back along the ridge and descend over tumbling boulders, back to a tiny path down towards a cluster of buildings. So where are we? Well, the buildings are a Buddhist monastery, where I lived for several months in the late 90s. I would rise early before the heat kicked in and walked up to the ridge to sit looking down at the world. I had many strange experiences there. The strangest was not speaking for an entire month. I kind of enjoyed it, but found it quite unhinging. Speaking seems to be the moisture that binds us together. And without it, I felt I was separating it into dry particles that might be blown away by a hot wind from the valley. The summer and the dryness wore on, and one morning it was time to go home. The track from the monastery led to a small road, and eventually to an airport. I made a telephone call to my partner, excited to speak after many months apart. But strangely, there was no answer, and I boarded the plane to London. As we descended to a damp English sky, I wondered if I was enlightened. After several years of meditation, I saw no reason why I shouldn't be. I didn't feel particularly different as I boarded the Heathrow Express and the tube home, but how would you know? Leaving the station, 
I looked up at the tower block I'd left several months before. Rain began to fall. I hurried in and rode the lift to the 19th floor. Pushing the door open against half a year's mail, I found the flat oddly normal. But amongst the bills and junk letters, I was surprised to see an envelope addressed in my partner's hand. On opening and reading it, I discovered that far from looking forward eagerly to our reunion and life with an enlightened being, the prospect of my return had become unwelcome. As unwelcome as my disappearing and being out of touch for months had been. The letter made it plain that it was over and there would be no contact from now on. A karmic irony not lost on me. Oh dear. But this was the first big test, right? Applying all the wisdom and spiritual insights I'd gained, could I overcome this loss, perceive it for what it was? A manifestation of the impermanent and unsatisfactory nature of existence. Was I enlightened? Or at least a bit enlightened? What do you think? That's right. The answer was a very short one. No. In fact, not only was I not enlightened, I seemed to have no power at all. I immediately fell apart. The mountain peak of my wisdom and conceit crumbled into a plain valley of loss. And then it kept collapsing into a yawning abyss into which I promptly followed it. Something very odd had happened. Basic human things such as love and companionship, which are dismissed in favour of grander experiences, now seemed to be the very thing that mattered. But unfortunately, that insight had come rather too late. And with this realisation came a kind of madness. I became unrecognisable, especially to myself. A difficult, embarrassing mess. I started to have strange hallucinations. One day I thought I saw a flock of sheep walking in the Grays Inn Road. And another, I swore I saw a man walk through the wall at Russell Square Tube Station. I became a terrible insomniac. And when I could sleep, my nights were haunted by dark dreams. I began a series of walks to get away from them. Ranging across the city and returning exhausted but still wired at dawn. Buddhism seemed no help whatsoever. I understood the words, but they no longer had any meaning. At my wit's end, I took the advice of a friend and did something I never thought I could do. I went to see a shaman, albeit in the very unshamanic suburb of Brentford. Something strange happened there one Tuesday afternoon, although I have not much memory of what it was, but shortly after, I started to read Carl Jung and to pay attention to, rather than to avoid my dreams. Over the next few months, I had three dreams that were baffling, but felt immensely significant. In the first, the long-dead British crooner, Al Boley, appeared near Piccadilly Circus, smiling at me. This reminded me of my father, and the sound of the old jazz records he'd play when I was a child. In the second dream, the American actress Tuesday Weld appeared near St. Paul's, beckoning me to follow her. And in the third, I was standing in a vast, dark, underground chamber, surrounded by the sounds of rushing water. 
Well, this last dream was repeated several times and was the most mysterious. But then one day, I read an account of the lost rivers that flow under London. Apart from the Thames, there are many, but most are now completely subterranean. I became fascinated with the idea that although you can cover over a river, you can never really get rid of it. I decided how to visit the fleet the largest of these rivers, which was now squeezed into a sewer under Farringdon. So for several months I bluffed and badgered Thames Water to let me go down to see it, on the pretense of being a journalist. Then, one evening, I came home to a message saying, OK, if I wanted to go down, I should go to a pumping station in the East End very early the next day. I was so excited... I set off in the middle of the night and walked all the way there from Notting Hill. On arrival, I was met by a gang of sewermen who piled me into a van and drove to Blackfriars whilst we got kitted up in the back. A manhole on a roundabout was lifted and we descended a ladder, walked along a passageway, down another ladder and along a bewildering labyrinth of twists and turns to emerge in a vast chamber filled with the sound of rushing water. Yep. It was the chamber from my dream, and the place where we started this story. This is the place where the Fleet River stills empties into the Thames when it floods and pushes open the four giant iron hatches high up on the wall. Up river, more up sewer from this chamber, is one of the junctions where the sewermen, like the Toshers of old, stop to check for small valuable items that have fallen into this wet underworld. Such was the ring that I found, a 19th century Irish silver ring I later discovered. But as we stood there, something alarming happened. A sort of warm wind started to blow. Immediately, our leader made a call on his radio. He signalled that we should move quickly. A storm had come to the city above. Now in the old days when this happened, men left on the surface would pick up manhole covers and clang them to alert those beneath because this is a very dangerous situation. There are only a few minutes before the sewers become completely filled with water. The wind that we felt was air being forced down the tunnel further up as the water rose. The sewermen moved quickly, even urgently, I thought. Wading, if hard going before, was painful now. My feeble upper world thighs were screaming protest, but the tunnel was getting smaller and the water was still rising. I began to panic. Whatever my notions were about lost rivers, dreams, symbols and Carl Jung, I certainly didn't want to die stuck in a drain underneath Blackfriars Road. In an almost complete reversal of my Buddhist aspirations, I may even have said a Hail Mary. After what seemed a desperate age, the man in front stopped, swung himself up onto a ledge and pulled me up behind him. The ledge led to a passageway, then to a ladder and others, and then a manhole above was lifted. And, sweet relief, we were out. We were in Clerkenwell, and it was raining. I spent another happy hour smoking with my companions in the back of their van. 
they tell me some strange and poignant tales of their life underground. And then I walked home in the rain. When I got there, I wrote this song. Hey, baby, let's walk out in the rain. Talk about all those things that we never thought we'd say. Let's dance between the raindrops, get soaked to the skin. Wash away the stink of this pain and suffering. It's raining. It's pouring. But I ain't complaining. Because I love the rain. I recorded it using a gramophone and a sampler. I felt happier than for months. Something had changed. I suppose I'd actually lived my dream. Or one of them at least. And with regard to the other two I mentioned, I decided to act on them as well. I moved to Clerkenwell. I started to make music that reminded me of when I was young. The sound of Al Bowley and 30s jazz in the next room. The song Isle of the Rain led to a record contract and to me releasing music under the name The Real Tuesday World. And the song led to all sorts of other things. It's still a favourite when we play live, but I shall always love it because of that day. It wasn't the end, or even the beginning of the end of the romantic madness, but perhaps it was the end of the beginning. You can cover over a river, but you can't get rid of it. Between the raindrops, get soaked to the skin, wash away.